Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by returning guest, Chris Popoff. Um, Chris, you were popping off the other day. We were talking about uh, extreme weather events in Alberta. I'm sure that's not the first time you've heard someone riff on your last name like that. It will not be the last. Um, great episode. Got nope. some awesome feedback. Um, had a journalist in Alberta call me up and say, who the hell was that guy? And I liked what he was saying about narcissistic energy <laughs> in relation to uh, to wind and solar. So you touched you touched a nerve there. Um, you know, was it Doomberg, he often talks about being provocative without being polarizing. Um, and I don't know if that was on the edge or not, but I do appreciate, you know, creative language, creative writing skills. And I think um, I think you, you justified the use of that language pretty well. Anyway, um, Chris, you're you're uh, rapidly uh, gaining a reputation here on Decouple. Uh, people want you back. I want you back. And we left a little seed at the last uh, the last episode um, that we were going to start talking a little bit about um, the oil and gas side of things, Alberta, unconventional oil, etc. Um, there's been a lot humming in the space. Uh, my inbox just this morning had a uh, piece from Doomberg. I think he's debating Adam Rosenzweig um, on this idea of cheap peak oil. Um, there's a lot out there um, in regards to obviously fracking, natural gas liquids, what is oil. Um, I will have Art Behrman on soon to uh, dive into a little bit of that. So um, definitely want to touch on some of those themes. But again, um, our previous conversations on and off air uh, about Alberta, about um, its unconventional oil are really fascinating to me. So warm welcome back to Decouple and uh, looking forward to diving in, my friend. Thanks for having me back, Chris. I uh, received quite a few uh messages myself on, on our last episode. So it was great to uh, have have a polarizing uh, reaction in the audience. There, were, there was some hate mail and there was some fan mail uh, in equal measures. And I, I like that. I, I think it's good to stimulate uh, discussion in this space. Um, my goal is, is pretty straightforward uh, around just wanting to uh, increase the dialogue and the awareness around energy. And uh, I think we refer to that as energy literacy. So if we get closer to that end, then then we've been successful. And I appreciate your uh, generosity in having me on your your wonderful platform to do that. Uh, yeah, you you did share that article, uh, Berman's uh, thoughts on on Doomberg's take on peak cheap oil, and uh, it is very much applicable to what we do here in Alberta and and with the oil sands. So happy to follow a, a meandering walk through that that uh, land with you that today let's let's just take your questions uh, I have no no set agenda or lectures uh, built for this but happy to answer whatever you have awesome awesome and yeah just to riff off of off of this intro um, this concept of a battle of ideas I really like and it's not to say that we should be combative or um, that 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 that's the goal but I mean it's really important I think we, we live in a very we live in a, a in terms of the communication landscape, it's hard to sort of label it as just one thing. But in terms of the energy debate, um, I do see a lot of conflict avoidance, um, which is often cloaked in language of kind of all of the aboveism. And well, you know, we just need a lot of clean energy. So let's not even, you know, assess the merits and flaws and and qualities of, of everything we're talking about. Let's just try and all get along nicely. Um, and it's a nice impulse. I like to get along with people. Um, but, you know, I think what nuclear has taught me, um, again, coming out of a pretty sort of cloistered, perhaps identity left scene um, where, you know, if you posted an article from a, you know, magazine that once upon a time had ever posted something that was um, offensive to uh, members of my political tribe, you know, that was a major sin. 
that's how sort of cloistered a lot of, uh, of, of my thinking was as a result of that. Nuclear really taught me, uh, again, because it is um, a technology um, that appeals across a broad political spectrum, um, to be tolerant, I guess, of ideas that may be uncomfortable, to really fight cognitive dissonance and, and the impulses to just sort of reject things out of hand. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, in terms of, again, the, the, the flowery language, um, I, I celebrate it. Um, and it's not like a bring it on in a macho sense, but like, let's have a mature uh, debate. It's so important um, that we do have that battle, that there is conflict, um, again, of ideas so that we reach some kind of a synthesis position where we're making really wise choices because with something as important as energy, um, we can't, uh, we can't just try and, you know, pretend that there's not major disagreements, or we're gonna have to make hard choices. So that's my, you know, further thematic riff there. Uh, but let's, uh, let's No, I, I agree with that, Chris. I, I, yeah, I think it's important to touch on that, though, because human history has been a, a series of, of stories of in groups and out groups, uh, battling uh, with one another. And you use the word synthesis, uh, which is about bringing different things together. And the battle of ideas and, and our conversation is one of the ways we could accomplish that. Uh, however, uh, you know, one of the comments that did come out of our last episode that uh, caught my eye the most was how could I attribute a human quality like narcissism to something that's not human like technology? And, you know, I, I agreed with that uh, concept. The technology itself has no human attributes. Uh, it's weird to humanize it, but the way we apply these technologies uh, politically uh, and, and our organizing are in tribes, in political tribes around certain solutions and ideas certainly is humanized. And uh, we can't really ignore that. The, the importance of being able to have these difficult conversations uh, is, is to really challenge what our baseline assumptions are and almost undo what our natural thinking biases are going to uh, lead us towards certain conclusions. You know, we we see a lot of stimulus in our lives every day. We have to make millions of decisions, conscious and unconscious. So our biases save us on that. And when the environment around us changes, sometimes our biases don't really pick up on that. So these conversations are really good at challenging when it's okay to let go of those biases and change your mind about something. So. Um, yeah, I say bring it on as well. I'm happy to have my mind changed and to be convinced and hopefully contribute something meaningful to that conversation and maybe change a few minds myself. So uh, oil sands is one of those really controversial topics because of its uh, image uh, around being dirty. Uh, there's been very successful marketing done around that, uh, clever language labeling it tar sands, for example. If you use that word, in this province, uh, publicly or otherwise, you're immediately outed as someone that's anti-oil or with the left, maybe from Ontario or California, or at least in that climate change crowd. So our word selections are very <laughs> revealing as well as important. So yeah, what would you like to, uh, to what get into? What would you like to talk about today, Dr. Kiefer? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess yeah. um, we've been so sort of uh, hyper-focused on um, so some nuclear esoterica, which I think is important. But 
you know, a, a lot of this listenership um, doesn't necessarily want to go down quite that deep in the rabbit hole and are more broadly curious about energy, about, um, you know, where we're heading, about, you know, this fundamental tension between, let's say, environmentalists and eco-modernists, this question of limits. Um, it's not a sexy place to sort of be in the middle. We were just talking about sort of the battle of ideas and the polls tend to be a really comfortable place for a lot of people to be these days. Um, social media, no doubt, has a, has a role in that. It's hard to find nuance and synthesis. But yeah, wrestling with that idea of limits with, um, you know, this holy trinity of fossil fuels, I think, with liquid hydrocarbons really being at the center in terms of, you know, the hardest thing for us to replace and really the lifeblood of our modern economy uh, that greases our transportation networks uh, for goods and, and also people. Um, that, I think, emerges, you know, within neoclassical economics, we're told, um, you know, supply is just a function of demand. If the demand is there, then either we're going to find more supply or we're going to innovate and find substitutes. The liquid hydrocarbons seem to be a very tough nut to crack there. Um, and I think certainly in terms of our conventional oil and gas, um, we have, you know, peaked in terms of that, but we continue, we've producing more um, oil than ever um, and uh, record production out of the States. I think uh, there was news about a month or two ago on that front, um, but we're having to dip into um, more unconventional oil, things with lower energy return and energy invested. And I think that creates uh, some anxiety, um, which I think has some merit. Um, and so, uh, you know, the big story, I think of the early 2000s, or as the British call them, the naughties, um, was uh, was I think the un, uh, one of the major stories anyway was was the oil sands was this unconventional oil coming online so I, I'm really wanting to understand it understand um, its properties some of the challenges of of, of accessing it and some, some of its environmental issues um, but I think more fundamentally just what it means in terms of um, our energy future um, and um, you know the prospects for for limits on oil. Um, and I, I think that's probably a long and meandering enough introduction and pseudo question for you to take a couple leaping off points. So uh, dive on in, Chris. Sure, sure. Yeah, the uh, the heights of our transcendence are, are limited only by the uh, the depth of our inclusion. I I've heard other smarter people say, and that that's true. We need to put in the work to have everybody's opinions heard and and contribute, um, but we do need to reject the things that no longer work. Um, Unconventional oil is one of these uh, labels, again, that I think it's time it, for usefulness has run out uh, insofar that it's no longer unconventional. It's, it's kind of the standard. Um, when you look at when Alberta hit the point of producing more from bitumen than conventional oil reserves, it was back in 2001, I believe. You're right, the noughties. And it's been 20 plus years since then. I think we're just under 4 million barrels a day total production in the province. Um, most of that gets exported to U.S. refineries. Uh, we consume a little bit uh, internally ourselves and mostly goes towards um, refining into uh, a diesel product. Uh, through through a big scheme. So the the genesis of the phrase unconventional resource really is just referring to the the way that we access it in in the industry. Uh, typically what conventional reservoirs look like and, and how we poked holes in them were with just standard vertical well bores, very simple, uh, big hole on the surface. And the deeper you got, the 
skinnier the hole became. And that's just, just the nature of that. And you, you could get at the resource that way. You could complete the well just by uh, running a little uh, string of what's called a perforation devices down in there and you hang it and you set the charge and fires all these little bullets or charges more or less at once. And it would open up the steel casing, allowing the fluid to flow in. And that was all that was required to get that uh, resource back up to surface. There would be natural pressure drive. You're at a significant depth. Uh, it's quite warm down there. The hydrocarbons had a long time to sit in the geology and bake and mature. Art Berman talks about that in terms of a thermal maturity of a reservoir. And really what's happening downhole in those conditions is what humans have figured out how to replicate in a refining situation on surface, really just sort of accelerating some of those processes um, in real time, making it more useful for us uh, to, to discern the different molecules and, and put them towards different applications. And oil is one of those miracle molecules where it, it contains many, many things so that that idea of uh, a manufactured barrel, Doomberg talks about the, the shifting definition of oil is true. Uh, Berman is also correct about that concept that this is not a new thing. It's been happening for well over 20 years, if not longer. Uh, there's everything from very heavy ends where it's nasty. It's got heavy metals, lots of sulfur, not a lot of heat content. These things might end up getting used as water sealant on ships or, or roofs or roads, uh, cheap roads, all the way up to the lightest ends, which are the gases, gaseous forms. So natural gas, um, methanes, and everything in between. So oil really does span that entire definition. Oil and gas spans everything that's in there. And we utilize different components of that in different ways. So Unconventional oil is really about not using vertical well bores and getting into uh, drive mechanisms other than natural pressure drive in the reservoir. So oil sands is one flavor of an unconventional resource. The tight gas shales are also considered an unconventional resource. It's unconventional gas, but again, when you look at total production in, in conventional areas that really uh, got their name as oil producing areas like Texas or Alberta. Uh, if you look at their conventional production rates versus unconventional production rates, the unconventional sources are outstripping the conventional by uh, huge margins. So it, it's the new normal. Unconventional is a word that probably needs to go away, quite frankly, because it, it is the convention now that is how we access all of our new resource um, and future resource that we know about. Uh, and then, you know, converting a resource into a barrel, that's, that's where the, the phrase reserve comes in. So a reserve is just something that's uh, economically and technically feasible to recover. So that's another gray area. And you're right, as prices increase, uh, lots of people like to say the the solution to shortages is, is shortages because it drives price high. I mean, that's true to a point, um, but there are, are many uh, real instances in the world where that 
that high price isn't enough to organize the political will, the technical skill, the physical goods and construction skills required to actually uh, extract that stuff. So there, there is still a lot of stranded things that may be economically feasible, but are, are politically unfeasible. And that's the reality we're in globally right now. Um, so you'll have proponents like Doomberg who, honestly, it's it's quite nice to have people like that with such deep faith for folks in our industry. It's it's nice to have that kind of belief there uh, in the crowds. It's like your dad and mom cheering for you while you're playing hockey or something when you're a little kid. But it's also a tremendous amount of pressure because the, we, we see the realities of this. I mean, possibly we can get after this stuff only if someone is willing to pay for it on the other end. And there's a sort of faith in the industry as well that that is true. We'll continue producing because someone's going to buy it. But one day that might not be true. And that's just the economic balance. When you look at the energetic balance of getting after those things, refining them, manipulating them into these Franken molecules or Franken barrels, um, and getting them to market in a, in a useful form is a major challenge uh, in, in the petrochemical industry, whether it's being consumed for transportation fuel, heating fuel, uh, feedstock for plastics or fertilizers or other building materials, pharmaceuticals, what have you. Uh, we suffer that same challenge. Uh, we need to get a form of this energy or chemical that is useful by the consumer at the time and place they need it at a price they're able to pay. Uh, the, the electricity grid also has that challenge. It's a time space issue. Uh, a kilowatt hour produced by a nuclear power plant is reliable. It's timely. It's predictable. That same kilowatt hour produced by a renewable source is less predictable and reliable. And often it shows up when it's not being asked for. And that's how it ends up being curtailed uh, or just thrown away, uh, dumped. Uh, in oil and gas, we have similar uh, analogies. We'll flare or vent or turn it into a product that can be stored for later. The same way a kilowatt hour might be packed into a battery and hopefully used later. So we, there's a lot of things that we share in, in terms of uh, delivering a, a petrochemical product or a thermal heating fuel, transportation fuel, and a, a useful kilowatt hour. We're, we're producing the ability to do work. And yeah, so that, that, that phrasing, that conventional unconventional is no longer helpful, right. I believe. It's, it's we have what we have. What we have left is harder to get at the energy content and the quality of it is reducing overall. And it takes more energy for us to deliver it to that consumer in the form factor and time and place that they can actually utilize it. And that's the big challenge. I, mean, I, I guess I can see the value of, of still using <clears throat> conventional versus unconventional purely from the perspective that we do seem to be peaking or have peaked in terms of our conventional production. And now, as you're saying, we're moving into novel ways of extracting it, not just a straight uh, pipe down into a uh, formation uh, and a resource under pressure, et cetera. Um, let's zoom out for a second. We did cover a little bit of Alberta geology in the past, and maybe we can be um, both a little more nonspecific, but also you know tying into uh, to oil sands. Um, but just in terms of a brief history lesson, how oil gets made, um, you know, with fracking, you know, you hear that we're accessing the source rock. Once that's drained, there's, there's nothing else left, but 
tell us a little bit, give us a, a quick geology lesson. Uh, I know that's not an easy thing. And this is a big question about, about how oil basically is produced, you know, where it's produced, how it moves, you know, where it ends up becoming economically accessible. And then maybe we'll do a separate question about uh, Alberta specific stuff. I know there's a couple different ways in which your unconventional oil is mixed into the geology. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, basically, the everything goes back to uh, coming coming out of the the energetic reaction of of our stars, quite quite honestly. And on the history of our planet, we're fortunate to have many years of biological activity, and we have many periods where uh, there's been vast vast forests and. Uh, reefs where where there's a lot of biological activity occurring in in oceans and it's just that huge amount of biomass that will accumulate and then be covered somehow by a geologic process whether that's a volcanic eruption major asteroid strike huge uh, shifts in in tectonic activities and as forests and reef structures and everything of that nature uh, die off and then get buried, they also will be preserved. And that process over many millions of years repeats. So you have layer after layer after layer of deposition occurring. And it's really interesting to go and see some of these uh, processes live and in action today. So a, a good uh, analogy that we'll often go and, and observe it in geologic field studies would be modern river deltas. So where you have massive amounts of silt being deposited at the, at the mouth of the, the Mississippi river, for example, is burying a tremendous amount of biological life and, and swampy bogs, uh, along the, the mouth and body of the river. You have all these fluvial environments, all that complex twisting you see as water's flowing. It's, it's capturing a mix of these sands and silty clays and biologic material that ends up getting buried. And many millions of years later, uh, that's the, the geologic formation that will either uh, capture or allow the formation of hydrocarbon, the conversion of the biomass into a hydrocarbon format. And if it is well-contained, it will stay there. If it is not well-contained, it will migrate into other rock formations and continue to find its way up to surface until it is trapped or it isn't. So in Alberta, we have a, a kind of a cool situation going on with our geology. We kind of covered how we had the good fortune of having um, massive amounts of uh, reef structures formed when we were an ancient uh, ocean, tropical ocean. And we've had lots of uh, forests and things like that uh, in, in later periods that we see in the layers. So the layers get deposited flat, but when the mountains, the Rocky Mountains were formed, it got kind of tilted on a, a horizon. So that helps the lighter stuff float up to the surface and it helped uh, the hydrocarbon as it matured flow through the rocks and find the little reservoir traps. And the best reservoir rocks hold a lot of oil and gas and water and, and keep it there until we, we can find it. So oil sands is a mix of uh, things that made it all the way to the surface and also got trapped along the way. The stuff that's on the surface is the real nasty Mordor economy type imagery you see. That's the open pit mining because it is so close to surface. It's literally on the surface or 
just less than 50 meters below surface. That is economic to take big open pit mining activities, literally rip the sand out of the ground, throw it into a tank of warm, frothy water and have the oil come off of the sand, separating the oil in the sand, taking the oil that's skimmable into uh, a processing facility where, where it can be separated and sold. The stuff that's a little deeper, that's too deep to mine, either practically or economically, remains uh, in what we call the, the in-situ um, category. SAG-D, so steam-assisted gravity drainage, is one of the in-situ recovery methods that we use. That's, that's typically what people talk about when they talk about oil sands now. Um, in reality, SAG-D and mining are about equal in terms of what they contribute to Alberta's production. But we in the industry believe that there will no longer be new mines built, even though there may be reserves and resource that is mineable. We just don't think the economics will work, that the political will will be there to allow for it to happen. So there's a big focus on getting after the in situ formations. What's unconventional about getting after these uh, resources is we can't use vertical wells to, to produce it. We'll use vertical wells to find it and to characterize the reservoir and make our plans. What we have to do is drill sideways, essentially. And when it's very close to surface, that becomes quite difficult. Uh, and not only do we have to drill sideways, but we have to drill these wells in pairs. So they'll track one another as they go deeper. And they essentially have to remain laying one on top of each other. If you look uh, sort of into the page as they're coming at you, the, the steam that gets generated on surface, and this is the, the lion's share of the energy consumption related to extracting oil sands, is generating the steam required to mobilize the oil and give it a drive mechanism. That gets injected in the top well. And as the steam enters the formation, it will tend to rise. And then as it rises, it cools and then comes back down towards the bottom well, which is the producer. And that whole balloon-shaped sort of uh, steam activity is called the steam chamber. We can only do this in formations that have competent cap rock on top of it, so thick layers of clay. The really challenging part in Alberta uh, and the fun part of our geology is that we also had a ton of glacial activity recently where just huge amounts of, of the overburden were stripped away or washed away by glaciers receding and moving and then the resulting rivers that form. So there are huge channels that are cut into these cap rocks where if a steam chamber were to be placed there, it would not be contained. It would find its way all the way up to surface. So we, we have to do a lot of work to avoid those situations. We obviously do not want to cause a bunch of bitumen bubbling up to the surface. It has happened. So we have to be quite cautious with that. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the nature of the, the oil sands today. And that's the, the resource that's deposited in that loose, sandy sort of formation. There's also a ton of bitumen deposited in our, our chalk-like formations, which we cannot use steam-assisted gravity drainage to get at. We're still working on that. There's a lot of schemes that contemplate drilling these horizontal, long horizontal wells and just using electric heating or 
microwaves to to stimulate the water that's native in the in the reservoir as well to uh, allow its viscosity to increase to the point where it will flow, and then we can have a hope of getting after it. So the the challenge is once that primary recovery method of of steaming is done. You know, some of the earliest SEGD projects are getting to the point where they've recovered 70% or up to 90% in, in very localized regions of their formation of what they think they can ultimately get, meaning it's nearing the end of its useful economic life. And there is a, an economic cutoff at some point where it's no longer sensible from an economic standpoint to continue making the steam to get that barrel of oil up. The value of that barrel of oil is not enough to pay for the steam that it costs to get it. So that's that's kind of where our cutoff point is right now. If we wanted to extend the life of these reservoirs, we'd need to figure out novel ways to generate steam uh, less expensively or to find ways to uh, support that activity, maybe injecting solvents like propane or other things that help sweep more oil with the same activity. Unconventional gas has has a similar challenge. Once its primary recovery is done, meaning that that initial pressure that is there has been depleted, there may be more molecules left in the in the formation, but it, it essentially locks itself up. It will not flow. So you you need to come up with novel secondary or tertiary recovery methods, flooding activities where you're artificially uh, creating pressure drives. That, that allow you to recover more and more of those molecules. Shale gas is in a situation, and hopefully you'll be able to cover this with Berman in in future episode when you interview him, uh, why that's such a challenge. But industry hasn't unlocked that yet. And that that's why we're, we're concerned that uh, are we at the edge of seeing what these vast, vast resource plays can contribute to the overall energy mix. We're running into these technical limits of being able to actually physically get these things up to surface, whether it's economic or not. And it's a major, major concern. So I do want to get into some more sort of descriptions. And I have questions about the sort of stationary power generation to make the steam and, you know, this probably like spider-like um, radiation of, of, of steam pipes, you know, and how far you can carry that steam. Like, I'm super curious. I love getting vivid descriptions of massive bits of infrastructure. But before we go there... Um, you know, a, a big consideration seems to be, um, you know, this idea not just of peak oil, but peak cheap oil is that you have um, decreasing energy return and energy invested. So I'm curious um, how well this has been studied, um, how much energy has to go in, perhaps in sort of barrel of oil or barrel of oil equivalents to get a barrel out, and how that's reflected in cost, because um, the fracking revolution really seems to have killed the oil sands, price of oil went quite low, um, there seems to be an economic threshold at which um, oil sands recovery is viable. But I'm, I'm curious because, you know, those prices are moving around um, and I think it's about $80. Maybe I'm, you maybe correct me on that where yeah, it becomes viable. I, but I think about this subject a lot and the relationship between the economics of uh, the, the money games that we can play with these resources versus the, the physics sort of based energetics. And it, it's amazing what we can continue to do that isn't, you know, sensible on an energetics basis, <laughs> we can we can kind of fool ourselves into thinking this is good, um, but it is 
a relative exercise. And is it worth it to do these things is, is kind of the question. Rather, is it economic? Um, so with oil sands in particular, the studies show roughly the amount of energy that goes into to recovering this, uh, you know, three to four million barrels a day of, of bitumen production is about, uh, you know, anywhere from three to five as a return. So the energy that we get into our product and exported is three to five times what we put into it. And that's, by most accounts, objectively, a low energy return. It's positive. It pays for itself economically and physically. But is it contributing meaningfully to uh, a society that's growing? And when I say growing, not just producing more GDP or increasing population, but expanding the access to technological benefits or, or other sort of human rights within the society, whether the population is growing or not. Uh, that is, that's the biggest question in my mind. What is that threshold that our civilization requires to, to just maintain the standard of living we have, let alone uh, expand that standard of living? When we have a significant amount of input coming into our uh, society level system, at such a low return, ratchet, you know, three to five times, that's helping us uh, survive, but it's not helping us expand or grow. And what we're really doing in Alberta is just maximizing the, the monetization of, of the resource that we do have. And we're, we're substituting the, the energy that's available in the, in the gas, gas liquids, uh, that we're, we're physically plugging into those bitumen barrels through refining processes uh, in a way that makes the, the energy content palatable by the consumer. But it's, unless you're looking at it from a whole holistic perspective and counting the contribution of all the sources, the, the energy contribution of just the bitumen barrel itself is not, not very substantial. So in a sense, it's becoming uh, a battery of sorts, a chemical battery or a carrier of, of energy more than a source. So very, very similar to, to a battery in that sense. So it's useful. Um, it, it's consumable. People can afford to pay for it in, in many markets, but not all markets. And, and so that's the balance. So uh, that's my take on the, the energetics of it. Um, and how we can sustain that is only through the substitution factor. And right now, the substitution bill is being paid by our abundant natural gas resource that we also are fortunate to have. If we did not have that at our fingertips, this would not work the same way. And my argument with what I'm up to in the nuclear space is, well, why not do that with fissile and fertile fuels? It works with natural gas. That's a finite resource as well. Fertile and fissiles, also finite, but the lifespan uh, potential of those fuels is, is much greater uh, than, than what we have available for natural gas. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of my core argument there. And insofar as we can continue performing those substitution activities, these will remain a viable product to, to the global energy consumers around the world. Um, that, that's kind of fundamentally it. In terms of the economics and the economic cutoff price, 
there's some interesting things that happen. So that that uh, WTI price barrel is the one that often gets talked about. That's a benchmark price at West Texas, West Texas, and it describes a certain grade of oil. So WTI means West Texas Intermediate. And it's representative of what most people would think about what a barrel of oil is, like what the nature of it is, the mix, the uh, energy content of that barrel is a de facto standard. And if what you produce is of greater quality, you will actually pay be paid a little bit more. Um, if the quality of what you produce is less, you get paid less. So in Alberta, we suffer that effect. And we sell our bitumen at a at a benchmark called Western Canadian Slurry. Oops, sorry, knocked over my mic. <laughs> we, we get paid at a benchmark called WCS, Western Canadian Select. And there's a huge difference. Uh, we get uh, hit with a discount and we call that the differential. So not only is it important to look at the WTI price, which is nice uh, at $80, it will pay for a lot of activities around the world, including in Alberta, but you have to take into account that quality discount and that fluctuates anywhere from $5 to $25 a barrel. And then there's the, uh, the exchange effect between Canadian and U.S. dollars as well. So all of these uh, prices at, at WTI are in U.S. dollars. WCS is in Canadian. And so you have all of these conversions <laughs> and discounts being applied to, to our business. But typically... Um, that differential has kept itself in check as U.S. refining, refining, sorry, refining activities have invested in the equipment required to take a heavier barrel, and that's that's been interesting because we've been a captive supplier to U.S. refining interests since day one. Uh, Venezuela is another analogy. They're they're very much. Um, a victim of their own sort of uh, domestic policy. Albertan energy companies were willing to uh, participate without taking too much for themselves compared to a, a nationalized Venezuelan policy where, you know, it wasn't a given that Alberta would be the de facto supplier to refining U.S. refining interests as they have been over the last uh, few decades. That very easily could have been Venezuela. It still very well could be Venezuela if they they played ball the way they need to. Um, it's quite interesting to to see how these things play out. Uh, so the economics are a different game than the energetics. We're fortunate in Alberta that we've figured out ways to continue winning enough in both realms that we're still at the table. There's, yeah. there's so much to unpack. There are so many threads I want to pull on, um, and I'm going to try not to pull on too many all at once. Uh, but the, the geopolitics side, uh, fascinating, and just thinking about what was happening in Venezuela uh, as the oil sands were really taking off. I mean, part of that was obviously driven by the price of oil. The price of oil was partially going up for uh, reasons about um, you know declining conventional, I guess, but also um, some of the uh, strong arming of OPEC, and I think Venezuela had something to do with that. Um, but yeah, being sort of competitors in terms of inputs to the U.S. Um, this brings me to, to, I guess, a question about sort of light and heavy oils. Um, I think I've got a very uh, simplistic and perhaps incorrect sense of that. 
Um, but in terms of the U.S. being oil independent, um, that is not actually the case in terms of it's not producing all of the oil it needs um, with the refinery capacity it has to not need to import anything. In fact, it needs to, from what I understand, import a lot of heavier oils um, to produce, um, I guess, the spread that's required um, and some of the heavy distillates, which are you know so fundamental to uh, you know what what. Uh, uh, God, B.F. Randall talks to us sort of the beating heart of civilization and, and the blood of yes. civilization, the diesel engine and, and diesel fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, so is, um, is Albertan um, uh, oil sands oil heavier? Um, does it work well with U.S. refineries in terms of, I guess, you know, upgrading their lighter oils to to get those heavier distillates? And, and again, just to clarify light versus heavy, like you hear about, um, certain unconventional, um, oils, um, being less, having less energy, being less energy dense. Is, is it as simple as saying heavier oils have, you know, they're, they're more energy dense. Is it just that they have more sulfur? Like help, help me understand light and heavy. Sure. And then that dynamic with us refineries and, and the role for, for Alberta oil in terms of, you know, uh, optimizing those refinery facilities as they have been set up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is uh, kind of complex in, in some regards and counterintuitive in some regards as well. Um, it's important, I think, to understand the difference between uh, gravimetric and, and volumetric density. So gravimetric energy density is on a mass basis. How much energy does a, does a substance contain? Um, volumetric is literally just in how much space uh, can that energy be contained. And I find it's more useful to think about energy density on a volumetric basis because that's how we tend to handle it. Um, Batteries versus a a tank of gasoline versus a a propane tank is a sort of a good example where um, gravimetrically gas and oil is similar in terms of its energy content, but uh, volumetrically, uh, gasoline, a tank of gasoline, that same volume of, of methane or propane does not contain as much energy in the same uh, Does that take into space. account compression? Does that take into account compression? or Right. If So like a, li- a liquefied natural gas is being compressed and, and cooled to a great degree. So, you, so that's exactly it. You're packing more of the molecules in the same space. That's what essentially you're doing with liquefied natural gas. So you're you're taking a fuel that has a high gravimetric content and increasing its uh, volumetric energy density. So it, it takes a tremendous amount of, of energy to compress all of that uh, gaseous molecule into a liquid state. And now it's comparable to um, other naturally uh, existing gas uh, liquids or or hydrocarbon liquids at standard conditions, meaning room temperature and atmospheric pressure. Batteries are sort of a a crappy mix of both. Like <laughs> they're they're heavy um, and they take up a ton of volume, so they they don't contain that much energy uh, on on either metric. So they're they're sort of a a less useful tool for us uh, for moving and accessing energy around. So in in that sense, when you think about it in, in situ, so while something is in formation, if it's a lighter oil, it tends to flow with less resistance. It wants to be on top 
of the column as you're drilling through it it will it will naturally settle out that way the heavy stuff falls to the bottom the light stuff comes to the top and then the gas cap is at the very top and the lighter something is the easier it flows easier it is to get at uh, the energy content of these different uh, hydrocarbons is um, gravimetrically similar, but volumetrically quite different. And heavy heavy oils do have less energy content than the lighter ends, like the gasolines, the natural gas liquids, the gas condensates, um, which are highly volatile, tons of energy um, on a mass basis, but they're very diffuse. So they want to escape. <laughs> um, and heavy oils also contain lots of nasties, like heavy metals, sulfurs, that um, the lighter, sweeter crudes do not. And the, the U.S. refining complex has um, shifted over time to accept heavier and heavier ends. So we're, we're a wonderful partner for U.S. refining interests and uh, indeed many, many refine refining interests globally uh, take on heavy ends because they they can make um, great diesel fractions out of those things quite easily by inserting hydrogen in, into the mix. So breaking up the long chain hydrocarbon molecules in those heavy ends, that's typically all that the difference is, is the molecules that make up those fractions are, are longer and more complex. They're carrying more. So when we're applying energy in a refining situation, what we're doing is just breaking some of those bonds up and then substituting a, a hydrogen on either end instead of the two carbons holding hands. We'll, we say carbons, break it up, be friends with a hydrogen instead. Now you're left with a smaller chain. Total mass is similar. Just a little bit of hydrogen gets added, but we're moving it up the, the fraction, the, the column. So lighter ends and uh, just being able to do different things with it. So that's, that's primarily the difference between heavy and light. When we talk about uh, the US being a net producer, that's just looking at all contributions overall. Um, they're, they're making more than they can consume. That does not mean they're not importing. They import a tremendous amount of, of hydrocarbons as, as does Canada, even though we're net exporters. So there's a, a little bit of a, a shell game going on and, and a lack of nuance when someone just says, oh, we're energy independent. Not so, not, not quite like that. Uh, there's still a lot of trading horses that goes on and, and partnerships that are required and relationships that need to be maintained. So just a very rare, um, very quick question. Um, is Alberta oil privileged from a price perspective for having that value in terms of being able to be down blended to create your heavier distillates in your diesel fraction, or it doesn't get any sort of bonus points for that. No, we, we pay, we pay a penalty. In fact, uh, around, uh, around the, the quality, um, it's, it is a trade-off. Uh, and that, again, that's, that's based on the embedded interests and what the refine refining interests are asking for. When we get the discount applied to our production, that's essentially the refiner saying, well, this is less useful to me. I have to pay more to, to effectively convert this into a product that, that, that I need to sell. I need to pay for all that equipment and extra activity, plus my profits, plus my 
cost of capital. And there's that bargain that we make the trade-off to, to just have that barrel continue to, to trade, uh, to those interests. Um, the, is that because like diesel and heavy distillates are not, um, not rewarded enough or not valued highly enough? If I'm understanding this correctly, Alberta, uh, heavier crudes are useful to create more heavy distillates because the U.S. tends to have a lighter oil that's that's less compatible. With that is it, is it just because we don't appreciate our ash vaults and our our diesel and our kerosene and we privilege our gasoline? Or I'm just, perhaps, I'm just trying to understand why. Yeah, if if you think about it in terms of the demand on the other side, uh, the the total market for those products is different, so people are willing to pay different uh, prices for for those products. Um, gasolines and diesels on an energy basis have a value to them that's you know three to ten times greater than a similar amount of energy from natural gas um, even though you're buying the same heat or work potential people value the product differently and the fact that you have to pay for desulfurization um, you have to pay to uh, synthesize hydrogen to insert into those uh, long chain molecules to to make a useful product, uh, that's that's really the discount we're paying. the The interesting thing that's happened in Alberta recently around um, Northwest Refinery, another sort of government sponsored initiative uh, to build additional refining capacity here. That's what we take about half a million barrels a day for and make gasoline or sorry, diesel out of it and look to sell that, it can only go so far. So if we're not consuming that diesel regionally, its price will be suppressed because we're oversupplied. Alberta really suffers from a lack of export capacity period for many of its products and that will limit us ultimately. So there's there's a little bit of that as well going on. We have no better options to sell to. If we had more customers asking for this heavy oil, maybe we'd pay less of a differential and our our local benchmark price would be closer to the uh, global harmonized standard price. So there's a lot of really regionalized, interesting games that go on with energy trade that, that are very uh, tied to local supply and demand dynamics. That are decoupled okay, what, from one, the energy one more, content of that uh, product. Brief question. One more brief question, and then I want to use our last 15 minutes or so to talk a little bit about alternative sources of steam and, and also just what this octopus um, cogent plant looks like, um, how long the tentacles are that, that uh, distribute the steam for the SAG-D process, et cetera. Um, but just again, uh, so sort of quick sort of hopefully yes-no kind of uh, question. Is it easier um, to, we'll say, fission <laughs> these longer, heavier chain hydrocarbons to make sort of mid-level distillates like diesel than to fuse, um, you know, natural gas liquids and lighter fractions together? Let's say our goal, we have a diesel shortage. Um, our goal is to make diesel. Easier to fission or fusion <laughs> in terms of our fission. oil fractions? Yeah. Fission by a mile. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Um, you're, you're right. Actually, that's a great analogy. And uh, the, the whole gas to liquids or methanol to gasoline uh, type activity is more of the fusion type thing. Whereas even what we're taking now and, and we're just uh, essentially boiling or, or adding hydrogen to the long chain stuff and, and uh, fissioning it is 
is a lot easier. A lot less energy goes into that and it's a lot more economically viable. It's also a reason why you see more of those types of refineries than you do gas to liquids plants or methanol to gasoline plants. And, and we'll, we're going to cover some of that, I think, with Art later on. So in the time we have left, um, again, I, I've alluded to this a number of times. I want to I get a good verbal description of this, uh, you know, what, what provides the steam to the SAG-D uh, and, and what that looks like. How far can you run the steam? Like I imagine making a major capital investment in a stationary power source to make steam allows you to um, access a certain sort of, um, uh, what am I trying to say here? A, cer- a certain area, right? Yeah. Um, so, so just describe that to me, and uh, and and I, I guess like I'm just trying to think of the timelines of production to justify a big capital investment in a stationary steam generation source. Yeah, you're right, and uh, you don't want to build you want to build that central plant once uh, or as few repetitive builds or phases as possible. So it's a bit of a balance between what's available in the market with uh, equipment that you can select from boiler makers and, and uh, turbine makers, pipeline makers, everything like that. Uh, balancing standard sizing and skills with how much resource you have underneath you and how many of these centralized plants are you planning on building because that's the bulk of your, your investment is, is the central plants. And as you, you go out further, uh, you add costs every kilometer you build um, your your steam lines and emulsion lines and utility lines and so on and so forth. But the rule of thumb that industries sort of settled on is, uh, you know, that 35 to 50,000 barrel a day phase size uh, and the amount of resource you have underneath you will determine the number of phases you'll need to build over the lifespan to get at that. Um, and we'll typically run the economics to, to about a 40 to 50 year sort of um, end ultimate recovery for, for that project. So there's, there's more or less a, a commitment saying uh, this plant will probably take 50 years to recover all of the resource that's underneath us economically. And the, the physical extent that we've been able to push uh, steam uh, distribution distances is, you know, anywhere from 10 to, to 12 and a half, some Operators are pushing it to to 15 kilometers at the very, very outset. And that's because they're getting skilled with how they they utilize their steam and and being sensitive to the realities of their particular reservoir and how how that reservoir reacts to the steam. But 10 kilometers is a good rule of thumb to to talk about how far you can uh, reach from one plant. That's, I mean, it's both far and, and not far. It just, I guess, depends how you look at it. Yeah. I guess, I guess if it's matching a kind of 50 year production profile, then that's the life of the, uh, the, uh, steam generating asset. Uh, I think I'm not going well beyond my expertise here. No, that's, you've got it. Yeah. All right. This doctor has been learning a lot. Um, okay. So uh, <laughs> again, we have, we have about five or six minutes left. Uh, got to get off to a shift. Uh, speaking of doctoring, um, so you've been involved, uh, you know, with uh, your nuclear startup, um, and I think inspired to to pursue that uh, as you were kind of alluding to towards uh, before um, uh, as as alternative ways to to make steam. You mentioned that right now there's there's lots of gas 
um, and you can run a overall energetically unfavorable process, uh, kind of, I guess, storing the gas in the, in the uh, extracted oil energy as a kind of battery. I thought that was a really interesting way to look at it. Um, but yeah, let's talk a little bit about um, nuclear uh, produced steam to uh, mobilize that bitumen, what that looks like. Um, take it away. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the sort of key insider or proposition that I make when when I'm proposing that we use fission plants to generate our steam is, is again, that substitution factor. We're looking at uh, either a choice between combusting a methane molecule to generate the steam at the right temperatures or in some of the mining uh, activities, we'll, they'll actually burn the very bottom ends of their production uh, and use pet coke uh, and, and just the dregs essentially to, to generate steam. Uh, petroleum coke. So it's, it's just really chunky, gritty, nasty, comes from coal or, or bitumen processing. It's the, it's after you've stripped out all the nice light stuff, it's what remains. You can still combust it, but it's, yeah, it's like a solid, it's really kind of grotty stuff. Um, but it has energy content and, uh, it has a lot of emissions when you, when you, uh, combust it. So even, even one of the major mine mining, uh, projects in Alberta is converting their, their coking boilers over to a gas fired, uh, cogeneration plant. And they're, they'll be supplying their steam needs and putting another seven to 800 megawatts of electricity back to the grid, which is something that, you know, they're, they're looking at everybody else around them and realizing how much they're making off of electricity production and, and sort of, sort of getting into that game. And, you know, that's all well and good, but a fission reaction has uh, energy potential that's, you know, millions of times greater than what a combustion reaction offers. So the, the amount of fissile and fertile fuels that we have available to us in combination with that reality of just how energetic those reactions are, gives you a really long tail to work with in terms of playing the substitution game where you can have extremely crappy EROI activities like, like gas to liquids or methane to ga- gasoline plants. You might have uh, sub one uh, EROIs like, wow, you know, it, it's, it's really not energetically amazing, but when you have very little options available to you, and you have an abundance of the fuel source that it takes to drive these things, you might consider doing it. So this is, this is why the technology was born to begin with. It was invented uh, essentially in German chemical labs during a wartime when they were physically restricted from having access to any of the, the liquid fuels. But they had a ton of coal and a lot of ingenuity, and they figured out how to do it. South Africa is in a, it, in a situation that's similar. Um, they don't have the war constraints, but they have a lot of other physical constraints and lots of coal. And that's how SAS Hall has been able to justify their investment in, in some of these gas to liquid plants. Uh, same thing with what we see in the Middle East with Pearl. Tons of abundant gas and an ability to, to recover those uh, investments by selling the higher valued liquids. Alberta is kind of in a similar game. So if we like playing these games and people want to keep buying them, uh, we can continue playing the game almost indefinitely 
by tapping into this extremely abundant energy supply that's many, many times more energetically uh, excessive. The ROI of, of fission reactions, even in conventional reactors, is anywhere from 25 to 75, so well above what's required to, pl- to pay the substitution bill and contribute that into the, the society level system at a, at a level that's above that minimum threshold of maintenance. Uh, it will actually encourage and expand growth. Um, when, when I look at the molten salt reactor type variant, the, the energy return on invested is anywhere from a hundred to a thousand times. So that's really good. That's, that's really attractive to me and why it works really well for this type of activities, because its primary output is, is heat. And these processes are, are heat hungry. They're, they're really big energy pigs, but they eat their energy in terms of temperature, not electricity per se. And the temperature range is relevant too. So a lot of these processes run in around 350 C and that's, that's just a sweet spot for this type of uh, machine. And not only can it supply the, the content, but it can supply the quality of the energy and steam required to continue these activities as is. And that's really important, being able to dovetail in with existing skill and infrastructure, I think just gives emerging technologies a higher chance of success overall, regardless of what it is, and including advanced uh, reactors. So when we're talking about nuclear, I'm definitely one of the all of the above type guys to a point. Large reactors, we definitely need them. Uh, we need more of them. They need to continue being built and refurbished. SMRs, where they make sense, are in the markets that the large reactors don't fit. And these massive thermal markets in remote locations are good examples of where existing gigawatt scale reactors just are a mismatch in terms of a market fit. And And that's where we're trying to fit our product in. Is that more of a sizing issue or like I've heard one of the criticisms of conventional nuclear is that the steam produced isn't super high temperature. Therefore, it's less efficient in terms of making electricity. Um, And obviously just combusting fossil fuels, you can get insanely high process heat and and steam heats. Um, And, you know, I think it's a rationale for some of the um, high temperature gas reactors or molten salt or or sodium reactors um, is, is again, getting a higher temperature. Do you need that higher temperature steam for SAG-D or... Uh, or or is that sort of 350 degree centigrade heat from conventional steam from nuclear? Okay. I I thought it had to be higher temperature. Yeah. So the, the temperatures that uh, our molten salt reactor will run at are, are higher than 350. They're closer to 600 C and that's sufficient to get the, the steam in the conditions that are required to push it that distance, that 10 to 12 kilometers. Um, the, the 350 degree threshold I was referring to is largely around what's required to run uh, a gas to liquids type process or a methane to gasoline type process, which is important because our, our temperature at 600, if it's sited in, in a, a plant that needs high pressure steam to run SAG-D, but it's also trying to feed, uh, a co-located or closely located plant that is upgrading the bitumen to uh, a higher quality product, it can, it can be sufficient to supply both. And 
having these complexes develop, uh, I, I think of them as sort of like lily pads. They'll, they'll be able to have these sort of bloom points where they, they build out local thermal and electric grids that supply just uh, the, the content and quality of the energy required by those activities and not necessarily have to be tied into uh, greater expansive energy infrastructure that's closer to uh, major population centers, which is a, another important thing. People don't love living next to big petrochemical plants or nuclear plants, believe it or not, uh, until they do. And they realize it's maybe not that bad. The nuclear ones. Yeah. Um, okay. So damn these, these hard stops, but um, just really, so as a result, really briefly, because there was a plan to deploy nuclear in Alberta and, and probably enough, it was very large nuclear. It was the advanced Kandu reactors uh, around 1100 uh, megawatts. And we had an interesting conversation before, but that was because as you mentioned, these carbonate oil deposits in the north i believe um steam doesn't work well for them and so they were going to run literally like resistance coils like what you have on a conventional stovetop um through these formations that that's very inefficient in terms of uh uh heat loss and, and energy so i guess that justified these super large units um that didn't take off um it's unfair to ask you to answer that briefly but try and be as brief as you can so i won't be late for work yeah um you know why why it didn't take off is that the question yeah and just i mean uh, the i maybe i've kind of summarized it sufficiently but uh, that that you know previous plan in, in alberta to deploy nuclear it, it went a fair distance in terms of uh, some of the social license work and site investigation oh, yeah. and and bruce yeah. power actually uh, buying a, a company i think energy alberta um, mm-hmm. so so you know, there close. was serious consideration yeah and i think also at the time the just the background was different as well. So if, you know, there's, there's these if then scenarios and yeah, it was, it was definitely, um, something that industry was charging ahead on at that time was getting after the, the carbonate based bitumen, but there was also, um, a recognition that the, the electric demand on the system may also grow. So even if that never came to be, the carbonate development never came to be, it was possible that uh, the electricity could be sold to the grid. There were still hurdles to that because the North and South were not as connected as they are today. There was not the excessive cogeneration supply being put to the grid by uh, the, the classic SEG-D sort of expansion. Um, coal interests were still being permitted to operate. And there is uh, somewhat of a protectionist uh, tradition in in our province that in, embedded interests uh, should be allowed to continue to trade in the activities. You know, the, just being grandfathered in and being permitted to have the full extent of of the deal that you know was made with them when they initiated their action and made their investments. So they don't want to be cut off early, essentially. So. There were those factors and then just the the physical factor of, well, we have this grid that's only about, I think it was about six or eight uh, gigawatts total. And when you're planning to put 4.4 new gigawatts (laughs) onto that and any one plant tripping for any reason, good or bad or normal, um, that's a a huge amount of the grid that would need to be uh, backed up and spooled up immediately or else trip. Blackout. So 
having um, having a really big grid or something with you know a lot of embedded storage like with hydro or tons of uh, you know ready peaking gas available might have made something like that a little more palatable for the grid operator to swallow, but they just couldn't. So they they wanted to um, essentially ask, well, can you break that into smaller chunks? We're okay with the total amount, but we just want to protect ourselves from this kind of emergency condition. And they only had the one option to sell electricity. So if if their output could have been diverted to other activities or otherwise, you know, curtailed, then that's that's one thing. Um, when you're selling into uh, a project or a thermal grid regionally of, of other petrochemical processes, um, you know, we'll back that up probably with uh, conventional gas uh, combustion. If, if the heat from the fission processes uh, is, is upset, there are buffers you can build in either with backup combustion or you have a thermal storage of some other sort that creates a bit of a buffer or you just ramp down your production activities, you cut yourself out like a blackout in that sense is economically harmful, but it's not catastrophic to the well-being of, of the entire society. Uh, not being able to have a warm home in a, a minus 40 situation, it's not going to kill people. So it, it's, it's a totally different proposition. Okay, Chris, kind of a... <laughs> Sorry for that last kind of curveball question. Um, That's all right. I just had to had to satisfy my my personal curiosity. Um, thank you again for coming back. Um, really, uh, a great great mix of qualities that you bring to this uh, conversation. I'm, I'm sure you'll be a, a recurring uh, theme on uh, on decouple. So appreciate the time, my friend. And uh, until uh, until next time.